Welcome to Tea with PILPG. I'm Paul Williams, and in today in our series of podcasts, we will be discussing the International Criminal Courts, Assembly of State Parties, some of the key issues which were faced in the debate, the proposal for an African court to prosecute those responsible for international criminal atrocities, and the launch of the PILPG Field Guide for Civil Society Documentation and Investigations. Today, we'll be having this conversation over a cup of English breakfast. We have four amazing guests today with tea with PILPG. We have Professor Mark Drumbel from the Washington and Lee University. We have Professor Marika Dehoun from the VU University in Amsterdam, who is also the co-director of PILPG's Netherlands office. We have Julie Frazier, who is a legal advisor with PILPG's Netherlands office and a lecturer and researcher at Utrecht University. And Federica D'Alessandra, our PLPG representative to the United Nations and a fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. Let's start with the basics. Julie, talk to us about the Association of States Parties Convention at the International Criminal Court and a little bit about what PLPG has been doing here for this past week. Thanks very much, Paul. It's my pleasure to be here and to talk to you about the Assembly of States Parties. As you mentioned, the Assembly is related to the International Criminal Court, and the Assembly meets annually. The ICC is the first permanent treaty-based International Criminal Court, and it's based here in The Hague, which is where the Assembly is hosted this year. Now, the Assembly of States Parties is the management and oversight body. It's a legislative body also, so it's a political and it's a diplomatic event. In this way, it's separate to the court itself, and the Assembly does not interfere in the judicial operations of the court nor in the prosecutorial decisions taken by the Office of the Prosecutor. But what it does do is, is that it gets to amend the normative legislative tools, which include the Rome Statute and the Rules of Procedure and Evidence. So they uh, get together and they discuss these instruments, and they can also make amendments to them, which are then interpreted and applied by the court. In addition to this legislative work, the Assembly of States Parties also looks into many other issues, which include uh, deciding the court's budget each year. They are also responsible for the election of judges and also the election of the prosecutor. And they discuss other issues, uh, including state cooperation with the court in carrying out its operations. So... It's the Assembly of States Parties, and the number of states parties of the court is currently at 123. The most recent state to join was Palestine, which just joined this year. In total, there are 34 African states that are party to the Rome Statute and come to join the Assembly of States Parties each year. And at 34, the African bloc is the biggest group of states that attend these assemblies. I should also note that the United States, Russia, and China are not parties of the treaty, and therefore they do not participate actively in this assembly. However, there are other people that get to attend, which includes non-governmental organizations such as PILPG. We have previously attended a number of different assemblies, including the Kampala Amendments, uh, which was in Kampala in 2010. And we've attended this year now with the largest NGO delegation at this assembly. Throughout the assembly, we've been live tweeting, we've been attending discussions, plenaries, side events, and making sure that we really disseminate the information that we're getting here out into the media and into the public and also for our clients. 
Importantly, we also hosted an event this year at the Assembly for the first time, and we hosted on the topic of civil society documentation of human rights violations. This event was held on the 23rd of November, and there was standing room only, I'm pleased to report. Thanks, Julie. It sounds like there's a lot of amazing activity happening at the ASP, at the ICC, and that PILPG is heavily engaged in it through our research associates and senior research associates in our Dutch office. It's, it's very exciting. There have been two major issues that have come up recently in the last couple of days, uh, supplementary agenda items that have put up, been put on the table by both South Africa and Kenya. Let's take a look at the first one put on the table by South Africa, the head of state immunity issues. Uh, last June, South Africa refused to extradite uh, Bashir, the president of Sudan, who had been indicted by the International Criminal Court through a referral from the Security Council. Marika, can you walk us through what South Africa requested from the ASP and how the discussion unfolded? Uh, yes, thanks, Paul. So at this ASP, South Africa requ requests a discussion on the interpretation of Article 98. So that is about head of state immunity for non-state parties. Now, Article 27 of the ICC statute provides that there is no head of state immunity. However, that only applies to state parties, to the ICC statute. So Article 98 provides, slightly contradictory some may argue, that a state is not obliged to cooperate with the court if it would violate their international legal obligation to respect head of state immunity. However, this is implied for non-state parties. Now, in situation of state parties, there's no issue, there's no immunity. But if the indicted individual is from a non-state party, such as in the situation of President of Sudan, al-Bashir, it becomes interesting. Then you would look at Article 98. However, in the situation of Bashir, there is a Security Council resolution, and the Security Council resolution is argued to apply the Rome statute, the ICC statute, to the Sudan situation, which normally is a non-state party, but they argue it becomes sort of a quasi-state party in that sense. And here it becomes really iffy. Some, and also in scholar debate, you see that people that are contributing to this debate disagree fundamentally on what that means. For instance, whether if then al-Bashir travels to other states, there is an obligation to arrest and extradite Bashir, or, uh, or not, and also if there's no obligation, whether or not there is even a right to uh, arrest him. So for the obligation, for instance, briefly, one of the arguments is, well, in the Security Council resolution, it is not said that the Security Council obliges uh, state parties to cooperate with the court. It says it urges them to cooperate with the court to get al-Bashir to the state. So then people say, well, if it is urges and not obliges, it means it's not an obligation. However, others disagree. Also, if you take this view, then you can still say, but do states have a right? So had South Africa, for instance, in June, the right to arrest uh, uh, al-Bashir? Again, differences of opinion. South Africa has responded from the non-extradition. They said, well, it is a genuine difference of opinion about the interpretation of 98, so let's use the ASP to have a discussion about this. Other states say, well, uh, this is not the place, uh, this should be ruled by the court, so that's another discussion. Is this something that the ASP should be deciding, the legislative body, or is this something that the court should be deciding? Okay, great. Thanks, Marika. That was very helpful in understanding what's going on with South Africa and some of the politics behind the scenes at the International Criminal Court ASP. Let's turn briefly now to the Kenya situation, uh, which is not a wholly unrelated issue. Uh, Marika, can you walk us through some of the key issues that Kenya raised this past week at the ASP of the ICC? 
Um, so Kenya raised a number of issues. For instance, in their supplementary agenda item, they said that two years ago, when amendments were made to the rules of evidence and procedure, they were promised that the new rules would not be used in ongoing cases. And specifically, they say that they have had promises uh, that they would not be applied retroactively against Ruto, the, the Kenyan vice president that is currently uh, being uh, prosecuted by the ICC. Now, uh, they are saying it is being uh, applied non-retroactively, uh, and uh, they have put uh, a number of requests to the ASB now related to this. So they're arguing that it is unfair. They're arguing that there should be, uh, they're requesting that there should be an independent oversight mechanism, an ad hoc mechanism specifically for this case. And they're also making very loaded and very emotional statements saying that agreements made in good faith should be upheld, uh, which refers to those, that non-retroactivity of the new rule. But also, and this is how we can place this in the larger uh, development of the last few years, um, they are arguing emotionally, and whether or not you can agree with this is another point, of course, but they are making the argument that the space we have here is shrinking, they said, and they mean not just Kenya, they mean African states in general, that it is becoming difficult to be here, they said. For instance, they also said, are we a heavy load that you wish to be, wish to be rid of? Are we valuable or are we taking up your valuable time? The direct reasoning is uh, a rule is misapplied and therefore a lot of states respond to it. Well, it is sub judice, it is, uh, the court is now uh, um, uh, having uh, procedures about it. Uh, but of course, the bigger debate here is that Kenya is mobilizing. Uh, the tensions that have been rising for years now that the type of justice that the ICC is uh, delivering is not the justice that African states feel that is theirs. And uh, what you see unfolding during this ASP, and I think this particular ASP, that it becomes more and more polarized, uh, that there is less of a discussion um, uh, where states trying to get together and more and more uh, a discussion where other states, predominantly the Western states and Latin American states, where they are saying, um, well, we just disagree. It is sub judice. We don't even want to talk about it. Whilst Kenya is then saying, but you see how we are excluded if we don't even can talk about it here? Let's now turn to Mark. There's been a initiative that the African countries have been putting forward to create an African court to try those allegedly responsible for violations of international criminal law. Can you provide us some of the background and your assessment of this proposal? Absolutely. Um, thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, I think it's very interesting what Marike said with regards to some of the comments raised by the Kenyan delegation. In particular, this idea that African states are being squeezed out of the conversation. So when one is squeezed out of a conversation, what does one do? One may struggle harder and work harder to be heard within the conversational frame. Or one may start other conversations that trail or track along different vectors. And to me, one dynamic that I have found extremely interesting that has emerged out of the sense of African frustration with the ICC is an increased vivacity to conversations within the African continent on issues of justice, accountability, and transition. And quite recently, in 2014, 
a number of African states adopted, at least in terms of a proposal, a protocol called the Malibu Protocol. And what the Malibu Protocol does is it proposes an extension of the jurisdiction of another proposed institution, the African Court of Justice and Human Rights, to cover international crimes through the framework of a chamber that would serve criminal jurisdiction functions. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Malibu Protocol, and let me signal that it is something that emerges from a sense of frustration with the ICC, and in that sense, it comes with good and bad, but also to me is indicative of what we as international lawyers and human rights activists ought to be the most sort of interested in, maybe the kinds of conversations that are happening. Let's start off with the problematic. The Malibu Protocol creates international criminal jurisdiction, but has within it an explicit provision that accords head of state immunity to sitting heads of state, which from the international lawyer's perspective is repugnant, is a bete noir, is unacceptable, particularly at that very senior level for understandable reasons. But let's look at some of the other contributions within this institution because I think they also reflect, to some extent, an African vision of what criminal justice might mean. First, this institution contemplates corporate criminal liability in addition to individual penal liability goes way beyond what any other proposed international criminal justice institution or existing international criminal justice institution does. Why does it do this? It does this because I think there's a very real sense in the African context that to some extent justice and transition requires holding accountable corporate entities for their role in atrocity, human rights abuses, pillage and transfer of wealth from Africa. Secondly, and relatedly, this particular institution puts a number of transnational crimes within the framework of what could be described as an international pan-African tribunal. It includes corruption. It includes natural resource depletion. And it includes a variety of other crimes, including trafficking, thereby, in some senses, um, erasing a bit the distinction between core international and transnational crimes. Another development that this institution undertakes that I think is of great salience is within core international crimes, this proposal alters some of the content of international law as understood conventionally in other treaties and customarily. For example, with the crime of unlawful recruitment of child soldiers, it raises the minimum age to 18 from 15 as it currently stands. So what is, in conclusion, in my opinion, the net-net here? The net-net is this. In response to dissatisfaction with the ICC, we're actually seeing the creation, to some extent, of new institutions within the African context, or at least proposals for that. Those institutions may spring from the impure source of trying to stymie the ICC and trying to protect head of state immunity. And that may be unacceptable from a virtue ethics perspective. But the source of law may not always preordain its content, success, or even validity. And here we see a continental form of international law emerging that is actually pushing the substantive frontiers of substantive international law 
in ways that I think are meritorious of study and that international criminal lawyers could and find quite interesting. Thanks, Mark. That sounds like it's going to be something that we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on in the coming years and might be a way, as you say, where a highly valued and effective institution may grow out of essentially a, a counter effort against an already well-established institution of justice. It'll definitely be worth following to see how that impacts justice for the people on the African continent. Let's now turn to Federica for a quick discussion on the PILPG field guide for civil society-originated investigations of gross human rights violations. I understand PILPG held a standing-room-only event at the ASP. Federica, tell us about the guide and, if time, the event. Sure. Um, Thank you, Paul. See, information arising from civil society has always been an important part of the human rights documentation process. Since 2011, however, when during the Arab Spring, citizens took to the mobile phones to record brutality as it unfolded, civil society documentation raised to a whole new level. The well-intentioned collection and circulation of information about human rights violations by untrained first respondents nevertheless raises a number of ethical, legal, and pragmatic issues, which the Investigations Handbook seeks to address in the most comprehensive contribution to date. The Handbook on the Investigations of Gross Human Rights Violations by Civil Society is a collection of guidelines and best practices for untrained first respondents confronted with the difficult choice of whether and how to act when encountering information about gross human rights violations and no professional investigative services are immediately available. While not substitutive of medical, forensic, or criminal investigative training, the handbook does provide an easily accessible how-to guide to the collection and management of documentary, forensic, and witness information according to international evidentiary standards. The paramount goal is to instruct to do no harm, minimize risk to persons involved, and of course prevent jeopardizing the future work of professionally trained investigators. The intended audience of the Hamburg is uh, local and international non-governmental organizations and other civil society groups that do not have monitoring or investigations of human rights violations as part of their primary mandate. Although uh, not intended as the main audience, the handbook may also prove a valuable resource for members of human rights organizations with a primarily investigative and documentary purpose, as they do represent the first comprehensive collection of investigations guidelines that are not crime-specific or have not been produced for training and internal use of those same organizations. The handbook is also an important tool for individuals engaging in documentation of gross human rights violations in their personal capacity, Paying special attention to security risks and access to resources, the handbook highlights the limits of what can and should not be done without the support of a network or an organization. Finally, in terms of the structuring, uh, the the investigation handbook is presented as both a visual and easily transportable field guide, as well as a more comprehensive online handbook, which is hosted on PILPG's website. There's also a number of supporting materials to the handbook, including a memorandum on the legal foundations of gross human rights violations, a memorandum on preventive monitoring, and a memorandum on the use of information about gross human rights violations, which have been indeed collected according to the standards set in the handbook. At this year's Assembly of State Parties, um, PILPG hosted a side event to launch the investigation handbook on November 23rd. The event was a highly successful event, and the the panel 
we had, um, highlighted strongly and reinforced strongly the feeling about the need for such handbook. Among our um, panelists, we had former U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice, uh, Stephen Rapp, um, the president of the Association of Defense Councils at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, Colleen Rohan, as well as uh, Paul Williams of PILPG and moderating myself presenting the investigations handbook and Alison Cole from the Open Society Justice Initiative uh, discussing the role of civil societies in uh, documentation of human rights violations. Mark, you were at the event. Can you give us a snapshot of some of the conclusions that came through? Yeah, absolutely. And whatever I say is obviously completely unbiased because I just sat in the audience and listened. I did ask a question at the end, but I have to say what I learned the most from the event were the two following dynamics. First, um, the defense perspective, I thought, was presented very ably, recognizing the fact that both resources and effort have to accompany um, the validation of a defense perspective because, after all, what we're talking about here is the reality that uh, criminal justice institutions internationally are courts. They're courts of law. Their primary function is to adjudge the guilt or innocence of a perpetrator, no different than what Hannah Arendt uh, described was the function of the Eichmann trial. That is the function of international trials today. And in this regard, due process requires a level of equality of arms. The second thing that I really learned and I thought was incredibly inspiring was the effort by activists, civil society, to develop a series of principled, ethical, rigorous, and vigorous guidelines to apply within the process of gathering evidence, information, testimony, data, and facts for the purpose of not only respecting those that provide that information, in the case of information coming from live sources, but also the way that that information, as obtained, ought to be handled and processed and provided to prosecutors and other lawyers working with the courts. Without this level of professionalism, two, the due process functions of the trials will become impeded and limited. And in this regard, I was really taken with the huge effort put in, all of which goes to ensuring due process fairness. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would like to know more, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or on our website at pilpg.org. If you have a tea or discussion suggestion, let us know on Twitter, hashtag Tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world.